We're in this series where we're talking about reawakening to Jesus, and there's something about getting around a saint of the faith, a senior saint, who doesn't just have years, but has decades of a history with God. You get around someone who's got perspective and clarity and with a a depth of spiritual reality that they live that, I don't know about you, but just something stirred inside of me when I hang out with those senior saints. And I'm thankful this body's got a growing number of them as we continue to get older. And I want to encourage you, if it's been a while since you've had one of those conversations, no better time than these 40 days of reawakening to Jesus. We're beginning 2022 in 40 days of prayer. And what if you integrated a cup of coffee with a senior saint? I think that would stir and kind of press on what the Lord's already been doing. And today we're continuing our series and we're going to talk about reawakening to Jesus' mission. So if you have a Bible near you, open it up to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. You should have received a note sheet on the way in. Those of you joining us online, your online host can direct you accordingly how to get the message notes and follow along here. Luke 5, here's the setting, verse, seven day, verse 17. One day, Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come, notice, come from every village. So here's something you'll notice in the Gospels where Jesus was present and active and ministering, crowds gathered because there was something magnetic about the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus. Now, not everybody was jumping on the Jesus train, but they were drawn to who he was and they were drawn to what he said and they were, wow, that's a low flying one, right? (laughs) I was thinking something, sound system. No, it's all right. We're all good. But they were drawn right to Jesus and they were drawn. So wherever Christ was, crowds gathered. And here, the religious leaders, it says from every village in the area, they heard Jesus was in town and they packed the house. Said of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, we're sitting there and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat. And tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So there was a man in Luke 5 whose whole life was defined by his mat. Most likely a bamboo mat similar to this, three foot by six foot or so. His whole life was really relegated to this piece of real estate. He was born with some kind of uh, inability to walk, a paralytic, another phrase, right? Someone who's just probably from the waist down most likely. And if you were a paralytic in first century Palestine, your life was relegated to begging from this bamboo mat. You'd set out a little place for people to drop some coins in, and you'd be dependent on literally everyone for virtually every aspect of your life. This was the guy in Luke 5. He was on his mat. But when we enter into this story, I want us to see today that really all of us have a mat. In this fallen world, in this broken world, You don't have to live very long to realize we've got our own three-foot by six-foot bamboo mat. 
For some, your mat is shame and regret. That's like been your defining reality that you've, the canvas of your life has been one of guilt. You did the very thing you vowed you'd never do. And you have this pit in your stomach and you can't fathom how you've hurt the people around you that you've hurt and you keep replaying the tape how you've disappointed God and you've disappointed those you loved and you've disappointed yourself and it's a canvas of guilt and shame and regret that you've just kind of made the bed of your life in for others of you your mat is anger you've got one of those tempers that it surprises you at times how quickly it can be triggered The temper can get out of control. You have those moments where the things that are coming out of your mouth and the expression on your face is even surprising to you. Where this, the Bible calls like fits of rage. There's this thing inside of you that's stirring and growing and your mat has become just this, everyone's walking on eggshells around you, not quite sure when you're going to go off. And you've decided maybe to kind of build some walls around your heart and distant and withdraw yourself from others. That's kind of been a mat, right? A a mat of anger. For others, it might be a mat of control. Like, you have a really hard time trusting others. Now, we might say, well, we trust God, but you're pretty quick to lend God a hand because you're pretty well convinced you know best about most things, if not everything. So as long as it's going along with your preferences, as long as you're kind of calling the shots, then you can get on board with following. But if you're not calling the shots, you're struggling with following. And it's kind of, and if you're Matt, you've just kind of built the bed of your life around. I think all of us have strands of bamboo in our mat that we would just put under the banner of selfishness. The Bible's word for the self-life, where there's just something, when we come out of the womb, we've inherited a propensity for me and my and I. It's about my preferences and my plans and my ways and my dreams and my hopes. And when I do get around to thinking about others, it's primarily about how others are relating to me. It's the matter of selfishness. Or we could go on and on, right? We've got Mats filled with grief and loss and mats of addiction, mats of anxiety and worry and depression and loneliness and isolation. Every single person you lock eyes with has a mat. Which means in the story today, We're all grateful for the friends that are inserted into this story because if we have a mat, we're going to need some help to deal with the mat. Have you noticed how much of our life is spent with mat management? Have you felt like we'll spend just large sections of our life trying to manage our mat issues? And we'll try to, some, sometimes managing them is in denial. Some people just deny they even have a mat, even though like everyone else in their life knows that they have a mat. They're the only ones who don't know about their mat. You know anybody like that? It's really hard to have a relationship with someone who doesn't understand their mat. And others know about their mat, but it's just, it's just too complicated and difficult and messy to deal with. So they just kind of bury the mat. Just, you know what I mean? Escape it. 
Maybe numb it, run from it, deny it. But we'll spend it large sections of our life just kind of managing our mat. But our story today says at the core of dealing with our mat is we're going to need some people in our life who love us enough to get us to the feet of Jesus. Because there's no one better at dealing with our mats than Jesus. And I want to put a term to that kind of a friend. I want to call that friend a spiritual friendship. The kind of friend who helps you seek God. I put a quote in your notes from David Benner, and I think he does a good job of unpacking what a spiritual friendship is. He says this, friends do not simply want me to stay as I am. Rather, they seek my growth. They want me to become all I can be. They want me to develop my gifts and fulfill my potential. They want nothing less for me than that I become the full-orbed person I'm called from eternity to be in Christ. They want nothing less than my wholeness and my holiness. Do you have those kind of relationships in your life? They're such a gift when you have them. The kind of relationships who, who know about your mat, who know about the struggles, who know the story behind the story, who know about the joys and the sorrows, the successes and the pains, who just kind of bear the scars of a life together in this broken world. Those are spiritual friendships who desire for you, who love you enough to pick up a corner of your mat and climb some stairs and crash through roofs and get you to the feet of Jesus. Wednesday night out here in the atrium this past week, we had about 20 or so of us guys, you know. That's what our Wednesday nights have been about. About 20 so, we just pulled some tables together and we sat around as a big group for about an hour or so, and we opened up to Daniel chapter 3, and we talked about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and we talked about the fiery furnace. We talked about what it means to be a man who draws a line in the sand and says, going to make a stand for Christ in some environments that are really hard, especially growing spiritual Babylon that we find ourselves in. What does that look like? How does that work? You know, at the heart of our Wednesday nights is just being a group of guys that just wants to develop these kind of spiritual friendships to help each other seek God. To walk with God, to be a husband, a father, a marketplace leader the way Christ would have us uh, do it. And that's the kind of friends that this guy in Luke 5 had. You could argue this guy in Luke 5 had like the world's best men's group or world's best small group. Because they just hear that Jesus is in town and they don't think about their own schedules. They don't think about all the barriers of trying to get their friends. They just grab the corner of the friend's mat. They're, they're going across town. They're going to get their friend to Jesus because they know if they can just get him to Jesus, he's really going to deal with the mat. Man, that's a friend. That's a spiritual friendship. And when they arrive at the house, they find out it's packed house, which no shot. I mean, wherever Jesus was, crowds gathered. So they're probably thinking as they're carrying this guy across the village, like it's probably packed. And so here's a picture of the house they walk up to. 
This is a picture of first century Palestine, what the house would have looked like, and this is why there's a little staircase on the side because they would be flat roofs and the top of the roof was a patio. And the top, the roof would have been built out of some mud and some straw and some wood beams would be the main supports. And Jesus is on the inside, crowds packed. There's probably people gathered around the windows and everywhere else. And so they walk up to the house and they look at the crowd and they just, they take the staircase on the outside. They're like, well, we got to go up on, we got to go up on the roof. And then they're probably listening through. You picture that scene, they're kind of listening about, hey, where, where's Jesus' voice coming from underneath out? And one of them probably puts their ear down to the roof, how he's raised right here underneath us. And then they start digging. Can you picture that scene when they start like pulling away? If you've been in any construction type settings, right, where there's something going on above you, you can feel this for a moment, where a little dust starts to come down. I'm sure Jesus probably knocks them away, but then some larger than this, some chunks of mud and some straw, and then a, a little hand comes through the hole. Can you picture that? A hand, and then what do you think the first head through the hole says? Like, can you picture, hey, I think it's, I think what he said is, Guys, we found him. Jesus, Jesus, we found you. We found you. Wait, wait, wait. And just keep pulling it away and pulling it away. And then they get their, they grab the corner of their mat and they get their friend through the hole in the roof. And here's what the text says. Notice here, verse 20. It says, when Jesus saw, what does it say? Their faith. You see that? Often in the Gospels, Jesus is focused on the faith of the person or the work that's going on in the person that he's about to heal or speak to. But in this case, he's drawn to the faith of their friends. And how many of you know the gift of a friend in a time of struggle? Isn't that a gift? That when you're flat out on your mat... (laughs) when you can't get anywhere, that you've got the kind of friends in your life who are going to grab a corner and who are going to climb stairs and who are going to crash through roofs and are going to pray you to the feet of Jesus because they know if you can get to Jesus' feet, anything's possible. And church, this is what it means to be reawakened to Jesus' mission, right? I want you to see like when you get linked up with Jesus, your eyes begin to be opened that everyone has a mat, And there's this thing that's called a need to grab corners and help people climb stairs and crash through roofs, do whatever we got to do to get them to the feet of Jesus. This is what the church is about. This is what spiritual community is about. This is what we're trying to do as we try to do, whether it's Wednesday night men or Thursday night with the ladies class or this morning Julie and Annie with a, a class on the life of Peter or Monday night when the young adults are getting together on Monday nights. What is all this about? It's this. It's trying to set environments and create context where you can develop the kind of relationships that help you seek God. In the language of Luke 5, to help you grab a corner of a mat. And perhaps it's your mat. Perhaps part of your story. I would argue that probably a part of all of our stories is the explanation that we're here, either in this room or joining online, is that someone loved you enough to grab a corner of your mat. Do you know who those are? They come into mind? 
and weren't held back by the obstacles. A true friend isn't preoccupied with like what it's going to cost them. Did you notice with their friends, they're not thinking about their needs, their issues, their schedules. They're just like, Jesus is in town. Our friend's in need. We got to get him to Jesus. That's a spiritual friend who are thinking about the needs of others ahead of themselves. That's spiritual community. That's being reawakened to Jesus' mission. It's beginning to see with his eyes the landscape of this world beyond the physical and the visible to the spiritual realities at hand, to know that every single person we lock eyes with has a mat and has a need. And if we could just get him to the feet of Jesus, oh, what might happen? Verse 20, when they saw, Jesus saw their faith, look what he says. Friend, speaking to the guy on the mat, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the guy on the mat, you can appreciate, you know, that Jesus wants to talk about sin. But what do you really want to have done? You're thinking, hey, how about dealing with my legs? Have you noticed this with Jesus in the Gospels, right? He, we're focused on the visible and the physical, and Jesus is dealing with a little bit deeper layer into the deeper realities. It's like your sins are forgiven. Huh? We walked across town, we hiked up on the roof, we blasted a hole in the roof, we lowered him there. And here's the thing, when you get him to the feet of Jesus, sometimes his friends, you're not quite sure what the guy or the gal on the mat needs, but here's what you rest in. Jesus knows. Some of you are overwhelmed with some circumstances Maybe it's children in your own household. Maybe it's close friends. Maybe you've got a brother or sister. Maybe you've got a close friend at work. You've got somebody's been on your heart and you're burdened about the brokenness of their mat and you've been trying your best to grab a hold of a corner and get them to the feet of Jesus. And here's a picture. You release control then of saying, you get them to Jesus' feet and you let Jesus deal with whatever he knows needs to be dealt with. Because our, our best insights are fall short of what Jesus sees here. He knows He's going to get to the legs in a minute, but he knows he needs to deal with the real issue at hand. His sins are forgiven. Now, remember who else is on the scene here, right? Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's New Testament Bible language for like the religious leaders. They would be the people supposed to be teaching all the classes on how people should seek God. That's this group. They looked the spiritual part, they wore the flowing robes, they carried like double-stuffed Oreo-stacked Bibles, like big, thick Bibles and laws, and like they had a chapter and verse for everything. They were the religious, they were the spiritual people. They began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks, notice in your Bible, blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In your notes, I put the definition of the word blasphemy. It's to speak profanely about God. It's like to swear at God. It's to mock and insult God's character. To the Jews, the most grievous sin a person could commit is blasphemy. And what are they so upset at? They're so upset at this. They know only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying to this person, your sin, he is forgiving sins of the person on the mat. So therefore, they know Jesus is claiming to be God. There's the blasphemy. 
That's why when you read your Gospels over and over and over again, Jesus is saying and doing the kinds of things to reinforce to everyone, whether they're on his side or not, the clarity about his claim. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the long-awaited Savior and Redeemer of the world. He's it. And they're not on team Jesus. So they say, blasphemy. You're swearing. It's profanity against God. That's what they say. Well, Jesus, look at these, verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking. It's tough to get in a dialogue, you know, with Jesus. It's tough to get in like an argument with Jesus, right? He's really good about getting to, you right, below the surface. And when Jesus asks questions, it's never for his sake. It's always for the one being asked. So when we hit those places, we should sit up in our chairs a little bit. So, oh, Jesus, he knows. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Isn't that a great line? He knows what they're thinking in their hearts. You see, there are two groups of people in this story. There are the guys on the roof, and there are the religious leaders in the room. The religious leaders in the room look the part. They look the religious, they look the spiritual part. They just don't have the life. Parenthesis, if you hang out around church circles for any length of time, you're going to bump into this. Perhaps you know some. Perhaps that's part of your story of what you're trying to come out of. Maybe you're raised in an environment. You've been like uh, Pastor Irvin. He said he's been a part of, the, part of the church for 90 years. He's been around. He's seen so much, right? What's the journey you have to work through is that sometimes you can become so familiar with God's law that you miss the heart and the spirit of Jesus standing right in front of you. That's the commentary, by the way, on the religious leaders of the Pharisees. They were so bound in their religious tradition, they missed Jesus. That can happen today. And that's how a bunch of stuff gets done in Jesus' name that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And for some of you, that's your journey. And we want to be a place that helps provide some healing and some context, not to deny what occurred that was done in Jesus' name, but to elevate this reality that that didn't have anything to do with Jesus. Don't toss Jesus out based on a bunch of abuses done in his name. And there's no lack of a bunch of stuff done in his name that needs to get tossed. But don't toss Jesus. Because the leaders in the room looked apart, the guys on the roof lived apart. The leaders in the room knew the law, the guys on the roof lived the law. Dallas Willard calls this, I put this phrase in your notes, the unity of spiritual orientation. Now, don't have an intellect, don't have like an intellectual reaction to that. Just stick with me. Unity of spiritual orientation. Here's here's what Willard is saying. It's an integration of your heart for God and your love for people. That's what Willard is trying to say. Look at this quote I put in your notes. To understand Jesus' teachings, we must realize that deep in the orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture toward God and a different one toward other people. We are a whole being. Hear this. Our true character pervades everything we do. We cannot, for example, love God and hate human beings. The unity of spiritual orientation. It's like this. You can't, you can't like write a sentence without knowing the alphabet. You can't do algebra without knowing math. And evidently, you can't really run a household without skills in Pinterest. It's that kind of connection where you can't say, I love God, 
but I'm not really interested in people. That's the guys in the room. They would all claim to love God. They would all claim to stand for his righteous plans. And they've lost sight of the mat and the guy and the broken heart and the needs of the world. And that can happen to us. This is the caution in the story. To be careful that the longer we're around the teachings of Jesus, the church of Jesus, the environment of Jesus, the careful that we don't drift to the guys in the room, that we stay with the heart of the guys on the roof. That we don't lose sight of our own mat. And we don't lose sight of the mats all around us. There were several years ago, I was invited to, with a pastor friend to Zanesville, Ohio. He was doing a little men's retreat thing and he wanted me to come and help him out. I was glad to do so. It was in the dead of winter and he showed up and I was doing a little teaching on the life of Peter on Saturday morning. And right in the middle of my message, this 10-year-old boy, some of the fathers brought some sons, which is really cool. Some fathers brought some sons. And this 10-year-old boy was sitting near the front. And he just raises his hand right in the middle. And I thought, you know, he had to go to the bathroom or something, you know, like. And here's what he, he said. He said, I, I really don't have any idea what you're talking about. But two weeks ago, I lost my dad. And two years ago, I lost my five-year-old brother. And it's really hard. And I'm just trying to figure it all out. Right in the middle of the, needless to say, the message was over. And what we did in that moment is a conversation for another day. But I want to draw your attention to Sam, that's the 10-year-old, Sam's table. At Sam's table were two men, Pat and John. You see, Pat and John were a part of Sam's mother, Sally, were a part of Sally's small group in their church. And when Sally lost her husband a couple weeks ago and lost her son, one of her sons, a couple years ago, it was Pat and John who kept coming by the house and shoveling out the walk and fixing random things around the house, taking her some food, checking in on Sam. So when men's retreat came around, Here's what Pat knew. Pat knew that Sam's dad would have him at this retreat. So he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pick Sam up. Big old snowstorm came in on Friday night, Saturday morning. Sally lives at the top of this big hill. And Pat said he, tried to, he, he got stuck trying to get up to Sally's house to pick Sam up. Do you think that stopped Pat? No. He got on the phone. He called his buddy John, who's in the group. He's got a big old four-wheel drive. And he says, hey, John, need you to get over here. We got to go up this hill and get Sam. And so that's what they did. And they bring him to this retreat. Well, on Sunday morning, I stayed to help lead through the service on Sunday morning at that local church. Guess who came to church that day? Sally was there. And after service, Sally came up and introduced herself. And with tears running down her eyes, you know what she talked about? She talked about the friendships and the relationships in her small group and in the church community at large who have cared for her and loved her and served her and helped bear her burdens and helped work through these layers of grief and loss. And, and then she kept saying, she said, I can't believe that Pat and John would like climb the hill and blast through all those snowdrifts just to get Sam to the retreat. And she said, since he got home from the men's retreat, he's not stopped talking about how meaningful that time was with all of you men. And you know, 
When I stood, I drove away from that setting a little later that day. I drove away with this thought of, I want to be like Pat. I want to be like, I want to be like John. Who, listen, Pat and John, I didn't, I didn't get to know them that well, but married, family, busy lives, full lives, full schedules. They had a whole lot going on in their life. But here's what they knew. They knew there was a 10-year-old boy named Sam who just lost his dad. And they knew that two years ago he'd lost his brother. And they're going to crash through snowdrifts and they're going to grab his mat and they're going to get him to the men's retreat because they know if they could just get him in an environment where Jesus can minister to this young boy's heart. I want to be like Pat. I want to be like John. To have the eyes to see. Have a heart that's so awakened to Jesus' work in this world. And one of the many things I love about this body and being with you for so many years is to watch you do that over and over and over again around here. So many of you are here because of the story of some other blue chairs around you that you could finish your, you have your own Pat and John stories of how you got to where you are because some people saw you, reached out to you, didn't give up on you, just kept coming for you and saying, hey, 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 I'm going to grab your mat. And then you just, I know a lot of you, now listen, some of you just roll off your mat. You just roll off of it. And we're trying to grab you and bring you to Jesus. Like, nah, I'm not interested in going to Jesus yet. But you haven't given up. And you just keep coming back. And you keep coming back. And you keep praying. And you keep serving. And you keep believing. And you grab a corner. And you climb stairs. And you tear through roofs just to get you to the feet of Jesus. And church, that's why I want to say what it means to be awakened to Jesus and his mission in this world. Because you have no idea what happened. If we could just get Sam to Jesus' feet. And I've watched you through the years. It's a church family. I've watched you serve so selflessly. Get random texts at random hours of the day and night about all the different crazy things you're doing when you hear about a need and you just go beyond yourself and you just... Give of yourself to grab someone's mat. And you've written so many sacrificial checks. Just give and give of your financial resources. And you've prayed such bold and courageous, holy, crazy prayers. You just have done it year after year after year. That's the only explanation for now the almost 30-year spiritual history of this body is you have been a group of people who have not lost sight of the mat. And I would argue, what a beautiful scene it is, is it not, church? When can, can you picture that? When Jesus decides, I'm going to deal with the, the mat too, he doesn't just say your sins are forgiven. What does he say? Look, verse 23 and following, what does he say? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Hmm. Immediately. I love it when the Bible does that. Immediately. Don't you love it when God acts that way? Immediately. Not like in two weeks, two months, or two years. Just right there on the spot. 
He stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. I imagine so. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Listen to this. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. That's an understatement in your Bibles. You gotta love the Bible. Remark, no kidding. A guy who couldn't walk is now walking because his friends got him to the feet of Jesus. A guy whose life was defined by this three foot by six foot piece of bamboo. He walked out, mat all rolled up. Can you imagine that moment? All the history, all the memories, all the years of wondering if this was going to be the end of the story. When you get, if we can just get him to the feet of Jesus, this is what can happen with our mats. Now listen, they're still part of his story, but no longer his defining reality. And that's a picture of what it means to be reawakened to Jesus' mission. So worship team, why don't you come back up? I've got one final story I'm going to share, and then we're going to sing a song together, a song of response. Some of you may know the name J. Campbell White. Those of you in the perspectives class on Wednesday nights, I have no doubt you are going to cover J. Campbell White at some point in your class. Here's a picture of him. He launched what's called the Layman's Missionary Movement in 1906. He was a businessman, not a pastor. He was a businessman. And he was burdened about getting other business leaders, men and women together. And he want, listen to this, he wanted to connect their Monday through Friday to Jesus' mission in the world. That's what he wanted to do. So he called it the Layman's Missionary Movement. The movement was built around three things, investigation, agitation, and organization. Some of you feel that's exactly what my sermons are built around. Investigation, <laughs> agitation especially. So investigation, they said they built it around that they wanted to investigate the spiritual condition of the world. They're like, hey, they're followers of Jesus and they may be businessmen there, but like, hey, what's the spiritual condition of the world? So they got to work and figuring out what's going on in the world spiritually. And then agitation, they were agitated about this. They've only got one life to spend. What am I doing with my one and only life? agitated. And then organization, they said, hey, we've got a role to play. We've got to get all of God's people mobilized to deal with the spiritual condition of this world. So J. Campbell White, he got, he got this group going. And he wrote a little book about the experience. And in this book, here's a quote I want to leave with you. Most people are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers. Hear this. Except the adoption of Christ's purposes toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Those who put everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. And so church, the call this morning is to shed our husks and ashes and by the power of his spirit be reawakened 
to Jesus' mission in this world, to begin to see that every single person we lock eyes with has got a mat and we have a role to grab a corner and to climb stairs and crash through roofs and, and get him to the feet of Jesus because, man, if we could just get him to Jesus' feet, whew, who knows what might happen. And so we're going to sing a song here in a minute, and I believe this song is kind of like some lyrics or anthem. I feel like this is the theme song for the guys on the roof, for the Pat and the John. That'd be a legacy that we could leave here by his grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, stir up in our hearts by the power of your spirit, eyes to see what you see, and a heart that is moved in step the way you were moved, the way those four guys who just grabbed a mat <laughs> and climbed stairs and crashed through roofs. And thank you, Lord, as we sit here Thank you for the people who grabbed a corner of our mat. Thank you for the people, some with parents, grandparents, siblings, friends, pastors, leaders, people who just grabbed corners of our mat and just refused to settle for anything less than you being at the feet of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of those spiritual friendships in our lives. Help us to be that kind of spiritual friend to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.